The following broadcast is released under a Creative Commons license. I believe in Jesus Christ, the only Son of God. I believe He lived and died, and that He rose again. I believe and trust in Him. Ascended into hell, Christ our living head will one day come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe and trust in Him. I will trust in my Redeemer, sing of His love. That lasts forever Know His hope And sure salvation I will trust in Him Though the world Falls around me I rest And know That He has found me Christ the rock Is my Welcome all to Pastor Yeshua. You've been listening to Creed by Richard Jensen from his album, Order of Service. By way of introduction, Pastor is an acrostic which stands for Preaching All Salvation Through One Redeemer. Our Redeemer, Yeshua, Jesus, is the Hebrew name for the Lord. It means Yahweh, the Lord, is salvation. Translated from Hebrew into the Greek language, the name Yeshua becomes Jesus. The English transliteration for Jesus is Jesus. This program deals with apologetics, questions on and about God, the Bible, and the Christian faith. I take questions and seek by Scripture to give answers and encouragement for everyone, including the tough-minded living in today's skeptical society. And now, let's join Pastor Yeshua. Welcome to Pastor Yeshua. Once again in this episode, we return to the constant need to educate the world of the unregenerate with biblical truth. In fact, one of the most important functions of the church is to educate and equip the saints with a biblically sound world and life view. Sound doctrine and correct theology are critical to the health of the body of Christ. The reason that this is critical is so that the church can maintain biblical truth within its ranks, and second, so that the church is equipped to give an answer to every man for the hope which lies within us. If we are honest, most of the secular world does not believe in God, and thus the Bible, faith, and the church are all unnecessary, if not harmful, vestiges of a time in history when man was uneducated, unsophisticated, biased, prejudiced, and very superstitious. 
Alternately, if the secular world agrees to tolerate quote-unquote faith, it is only under the premise that either all religions are equal or that religion and faith must be subservient to every person and every person's desires and needs. As such, secular humanism constructs religion and faith into being a ship without any sail, afloat on an endless sea of the culture, the consensus, and the opinion of every person, regardless of what those opinions are, or how diametrically opposed they may be to God. If there is a God, then God is no different than silly putty to be molded and shaped as seen fit and never more important than any person's subjective feelings. This is the humanist perspective which begins with man and makes man the ultimate source of authority for everything. But, as so often stated, a biblical world and life view maintains that God is the ultimate source of all authority as revealed in his word, the Bible, in context. From this perspective, if we defer to God's word, we would agree with Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 14, which makes it clear, saying, quote, And he i.e. God, gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers. Uh, to do what? For the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Uh, with what goal? Till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Uh, what concerns and dangers are there? That we henceforth be no more children, tossed to and fro, and carried about with every wind of doctrine, by the slight of men and cunning craftiness, whereby they lie in wait to deceive." Unquote. Having said this, there seems to be a never-ending supply of confused people, or perhaps disingenuous people, who demand, using a humanistic perspective, to attempt to analyze Christianity, which is a world-and-life view that is completely antithetical and irreconcilable to that of humanism. Predictably, when Christianity does not conform itself to humanism, those engaged in the attempt to do so are quick to blame Christianity as being to blame. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would, by your Holy Spirit, provide clarity to the issue here at hand. I pray that you would soften our hearts and open our minds giving us discernment to what you have declared via your word. I pray that your word would be true and that every man would be found a liar and that you would forever be glorified. 
In Jesus' name, amen. Let's take our case in chief with a recent story I encountered entitled, quote, Is Christianity Stuck? Unquote. Spoiler alert. The title betrays the author's priori bias. If Christianity was valid, then Christianity would keep pace with the consensus of humanistic cultural perspectives and values. If we can find a percentage of people who are unhappy with Christianity, then the automatic assumption is that Christianity is quote-unquote stuck. And it can never be a possibility that society is the one who has succumbed to having problems. The title and the author's bias which lies behind the process demonstrates the inherent problems of assuming that humanism is the only basis by which we examine anything. Ultimately, the article provides self-verification and proof that when one begins with a false premise, they will, as in this case, end with a false premise. To continue, the author subtitles the article opining that there are, quote, 21 outdated church practices that need reform, unquote. The author goes on to explain, saying, and this is just the way I hear the author's voice in my head, quote, Under modern pressures, churches are being called to reflect and renew their practices to remain resonant. The question isn't about the core tenets of Christianity, but how they're being applied. Do these 21 practices require a thoughtful overhaul? Unquote. Notice the disingenuous question just launched before us after already declaring the unilateral statement of fact that there are allegedly, quote, 21 outdated church practices that need reform, unquote. Well, okay, if we take the premise of secular humanism that there is no God, or that man simply invents God and or religion to serve himself, then sure, we can invent and reinvent all aspects of God and religion, including church practices, as every human sees right in their own eyes, moment to moment, and every variation which we come up with, we can call good. In fact, under the banner of secular humanism, if everyone has the ability to invent and worship a god or gods as they see right in their own eyes, then the author here is being very intolerant and judgmental to suggest that anyone is outdated or needs to reform. If there is no ultimate authority in existence, then how does the author know what is outdated and what needs reform? In order to get a better understanding of what the author specifically believes is outdated and needs reform, let's let the author speak for herself. The first quote-unquote outdated issue in need of quote-unquote reform is quote, 
single language services, unquote. Let's consult the author, who says the following, quote, Holding church services in only one language can inadvertently exclude non-native speakers, going against the diverse and inclusive nature of the early Christian church. Embracing linguistic diversity in worship could foster a more welcoming environment for all. Unquote. Here, I'm not sure what the author is lamenting. Insofar as I'm aware, the language base of the community in which most church services are held have almost always been the driving force for what language is spoken in the church. If the church is large enough and there are enough people speaking more than one language attending the church, then it's already not uncommon to see services in two languages. So, given the fact that the Bible has been translated into almost every language in existence, including Braille, and that there are churches radio programs, podcasts, and television programs available for almost every language there is, I'm not sure what the author is complaining about. When the author attempts to compare today's landscape of the church and its supposed language barrier deficit and, quote, diverse and inclusive nature of the early church, unquote, well, I'm really confused. What quote-unquote early church are you referring to to which was so dramatically more diverse and inclusive? Uh, was it perhaps the uh, Catholic Church who in many cases spoke only in Latin to an audience because it is supposedly the, the quote-unquote official language of the church regardless of whether the audience understood it or not? Um, how about the early Catholic Church who prohibited people from possessing, much less reading the Bible for themselves? Further, people were persecuted, tortured, and killed oftentimes for refusing to comply with certain beliefs and or practices of the Catholic Church. So, so much for the diverse and inclusive nature of that early church. In conclusion, if there is a church where there are people who don't feel quote-unquote included or quote-unquote welcomed because they don't hear things in their language, then go ahead and appoint someone who's gifted in whatever language you prefer and have them start an independent church or an independent service in that language or have them translate the service into the language of your choice and enjoy. What is stopping you? The second quote-unquote outdated issue in need of quote-unquote reform is the quote prosperity gospel unquote. Let's consult the author who says the following quote the concept that a person's wealth is a sign of their faithfulness has seeped into some church doctrines, despite Christianity's foundational teachings that value spiritual wealth over material riches. 
This idea that faith can be measured by one's bank balance is at odds with the humble and charitable principles Jesus embodied. Unquote. Here, the Bible and the author actually agree. The prosperity gospel is one of many heretical ideas that has no place in a biblical church. The easiest way to eliminate it is for people to simply walk out and avoid it altogether. As soon as those who promote the prosperity gospel cease to be prosperous, then they will cease to promote and preach because there is no financial prosperity in it for them. Having said this, this issue has nothing to do with Christianity being quote-unquote stuck because neither the prosperity gospel nor the churches or people advocating it are biblically Christian. It's like suggesting that geology is stuck because there are people who believe that the earth is flat, or that geologists have egg on their face and should be ashamed because there are flat earthers. We don't do this kind of whole cloth castigation with any other pursuit in life. So why must everyone who claims to be Christian or a church affect the whole? Simply put, the reason is that there are people who don't like God, the Bible, Christianity, or the church. And the easiest way to denigrate it is to use the counterfeit aspects of Christianity to accuse and libel the authority of the genuine. According to the author, the third outdated issue in need of reform is, quote, mainly passive worship services, unquote. Let's consult the author who says the following, quote, Church services that consist of passive reception rather than active participation may not fully encapsulate the communal and reciprocal nature of early Christian worship. Reinventing services to be more engaging and interactive could rekindle the original spirit of community and involvement. Unquote. Once again, we are not given any specific details as to what constitutes quote-unquote active participation. Additionally, this is the second time the author has mentioned quote early Christian worship, unquote, as the benchmark of what works. My guess is that based upon my experience of 50 years plus in the Christian church is that the author is repeating the same complaint, which I myself have often heard from secular, worldly, unregenerate people. In almost every case of the secular population, they grade the church as an entertainment experience. It's like anything else one buys tickets for or pays an entrance fee for. They want to be amused. They want exciting thrills and chills for emotions. In short, they want Disneyland. They want a carnival. They want a circus. And because church is once a week... They want every week to be different and to surpass the last. The problem is that this is not what God wants. 
biblically speaking, we don't go to church for God, the pastor, or anyone else to entertain the congregation. The members of the church go to church to learn and to worship God. Church is one of many things in the Christian walk which is designed to bring greater sanctification in our lives and greater unity in the body of Christ with Christ being the central figure of lordship in every area of both the church and its members. The, quote, spirit of community and involvement, unquote, of which the author speaks, does not come from a church service being, quote, unquote, active, entertaining, or emotionally exciting. Instead, in the biblical church, each member's desire to involve themselves with the community comes from the reality of the indwelling Holy Spirit implanted in our hearts, and as a result of being transformed with a new nature via a relationship with Jesus Christ. In this condition, according to Romans chapter 5, verse 5, the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts, and we have a sincere desire to reach the lost and to follow the Great Commission to our communities. But the involvement is not simply some generic involvement for the sake of involvement. Rather, the involvement with the community is to share the gospel with the lost and to pray, teach, and encourage repentance and sanctification in the community. This has always been the model and example of the true church. So when the author bemoans some disparity between the landscape of what is and the, quote, nature of the early church, unquote, I have absolutely no idea what she is talking about, and neither does she, I suspect. The fourth, quote-unquote, outdated issue in need of, quote-unquote, reform, according to the author, is the, quote, exclusionary membership rules, unquote. Let's consult the author who says the following, quote, Practices such as close communion or restricted membership may contradict the message of inclusivity and open-heartedness central to Christian teachings. The early church was about breaking down barriers, not erecting them, making everyone feel welcome at the table of fellowship. Unquote. Here, the author exposes her absolute and complete ignorance of the Bible and of the early church. So, rather than defer to opinions, let's consult the source, which is God's Word. The subject here, according to the author, is her complaint about the, quote, table of fellowship, unquote, or communion, also known as the, quote, Lord's table, unquote. According to the author, she is insisting that the church should not be quote-unquote restricting anyone. Instead, the church should be, wait for the predictable buzzwords, quote, inclusive, unquote, quote, open-hearted, unquote, quote, welcoming, unquote, quote, breaking down barriers, unquote. 
Okay, well, let's read historically what the first century church actually did in reality. Let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 14 through 21. Quote, Wherefore, my dearly beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to wise men. Judge ye what I say. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we, being many, are one bread and one body. For we are all partakers of that one bread. Behold, Israel, after the flesh, are not they which eat of the sacrifices partakers of the altar? What say I then, that the idol is anything? Or that which is offered to sacrifice to idols is anything? But I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to devils, and not to God. And I would not that ye should have fellowship with devils. Ye cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of devils. Ye cannot be partakers of the Lord's table and of the table of devils." Unquote. Simply put, according to Paul, moved by the Holy Spirit, the church is supposed to shun idolatry. The church is supposed to restrict idolatry not be quote-unquote inclusive, quote-unquote open-hearted, quote-unquote welcoming, or quote-unquote breaking down barriers to it. Also, look at 1 Corinthians chapter 11 verses 26 through 32, which gives additional insight by Paul. Quote, For as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, Ye do show the Lord's death till he come. Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this cause, many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep, i.e. they're dead. For if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened of the Lord, that we should not be condemned with the world." Unquote. So, let's review what we know based upon the above verses, as well as the totality of Scripture. Number one, communion, the Lord's table, or the table of fellowship, is only for the church. The church, or the ecclesia, are the quote-unquote out-called ones, those whom God is pleased to call out from the unregenerate world to himself. Thus, by definition, communion is closed to all except the church who are in fact born from above. Number two, second, we learn that the church is rightly the one given discernment 
who is directed to restrict communion to those members who are under discipline or who are manifestly not members of the body of Christ due to obvious sin and or rebellion against the plain declarations of God's word. Number three, thirdly, we learn that each child of God who knows Christ via relationship is directed to apply discernment and to examine their heart and life, to judge ourselves, to confess and repent of any sin before we engage in communion so as to avoid God's judgment against unrepentant sin in our lives. Number four. Fourthly, we are to discern with clarity that communion is a symbol remembering and acknowledging what Christ has accomplished for us on the cross. Number five. Lastly, a failure to take communion seriously and understand what it signifies can have both spiritual and physical consequences. For all of these reasons, and likely more, we see that the author's problem is that she and others believe that communion is no different than playing bingo or using a public telephone. Why, everybody should be allowed to do it. And nobody, not even the devil, should be excluded. But the truth is that it is God who is making and keeping the rules. And neither we nor the author have the authority to change what God has declared. The fifth quote-unquote outdated issue in need of quote-unquote reform, according to the author, is quote, inflexible service times, unquote. Let's consult the author who says the following, quote, Service times that don't adapt to the varied schedules of modern life can exclude potential attendees. Flexibility in scheduling could open doors for those whose commitments make traditional service times challenging, unquote. Uh, does the author really think that if there were 10,000 people, or 2,000 people, or maybe even simply 250 people who wanted to attend church on a Monday at 11.45 a.m. on a regular basis, that the church would not likely hold services to accommodate them? Clearly, they likely will. But... If the author imagines that everyone who's already used to Sundays at 10 o'clock a.m. are going to alter their schedule for five people, then I suggest the author needs therapy. So, it's not an issue of quote-unquote inflexibility, but rather an issue of logistics, common consensus, and convenience. In addition, it seems the author believes that there is a disconnect due to an underappreciation or lack of empathy for the rigors of quote-unquote modern life. Well, I would ask, when was the last time someone in average modern life America had to fear being persecuted, beaten, imprisoned, or martyred for attending church and their belief in Christ. Um, 
When is the last time a pastor was beaten, stoned, thrown out of town, threatened, persecuted, imprisoned, or martyred? Um, how is it that the first century people were able to attend church secretly in caves and private homes under the constant threat by Rome, by pagans, and by overzealous Jews uh, who were, while still trying to make a living, and you, with your modern amenities and no persecution, are unable. Do you really want to complain and compare modern life as quote-unquote inflexible and quote-unquote rigorous when you have podcasts, radio shows, audiobooks, television shows, cassette tapes, CDs, and a thousand and one churches, you with your electric car, your public transportation, and a flat screen television in several rooms, give me a break. Methinks that the author doth protest too much. The sixth quote-unquote outdated issue in need of quote-unquote reform, according to our author, is the problem of quote unquestioned leadership structures, unquote. Let's consult the author who says the following, quote, In some churches, leaders operate without sufficient accountability, which can lead to misuse of power. Jesus championed the model of servant leadership, where leaders are deeply accountable to their community, exemplifying humility and service. Unquote. Here, the first glaring fallacy is that there is such a thing anywhere as, quote, unquestioned leadership structures. Today, Virtually every church and every leader have regular opportunity for questions about leadership and structure on a regular basis. The author defaults to Jesus as an example who, quote, championed a model of servant leadership where leaders are deeply accountable to their community, exemplifying humility and service, unquote. Well, once again, the author displays her lack of historical and biblical accuracy. Jesus was never, quote, deeply accountable to the community, unquote. Jesus was accountable to God the Father and faithfully accomplished what God had given him to do in order to glorify the Father. Oftentimes, what Jesus did was in defiance and opposition to what the community agreed with. The very underlying mission of Jesus was to come in the flesh as God, a very God, and to do and to finish that which mankind and the quote-unquote community could not do and then were rebellion to doing because the community was upset and in rebellion with what Jesus was doing, it was the community who ultimately participated in murdering Jesus. So, if Jesus had taken the author's advice 
and been deeply accountable to the whims and the desires of a wicked community, then Jesus would have failed his mission and then we would be the ones stuck with yet another example of a get-along, go-along guy named Jesus. When the author states that there are, quote, in some churches leaders who operate without sufficient accountability, unquote, my guess is that the author is unhappy when there are churches and leaders who refuse to operate based upon what the consensus of the community and their whims and desires and have the audacity to actually defer to God's word in context for what goes on in church. In terms of, quote, misuse of power, unquote, we would first have to agree on who is defining what, quote unquote, misuse is or is not before we could then label what is going on or failing to go on as such. The bottom line is that the majority of things which can or should be labeled as, quote, misuse of power, unquote, are addressed by God's word already. So, if those issues occur within a quote-unquote church and or a quote-unquote leader in a church, then scripture makes it clear that those people should be removed as leaders. If we find churches who excuse or overlook biblical quote-unquote misuse of power, then the reality is that you don't have a biblical church and it has ceased to glorify God. But if the issue is that the church and or the leaders simply refuse to compromise with worldly carnality and fleshly desires of the community or consensus, then the church and or its leaders should always stand firm upon the sufficiency of Scripture and not the unregenerate world. Yes, churches and leaders should exemplify humility and service just as Jesus did, but we also can and should exemplify the authority, the discernment, the wisdom, the justice, the righteousness, the holiness, the salt, the light, and the truth which Jesus exemplified and continues to exemplify. This is not just a suggestion. Jesus commands us to do these things regardless of the world and its sentiments. The bottom line is that the unregenerate world is incapable of understanding, much less being suitable to hold the church accountable, because God created his people, the church, and empower them to be his instrument to hold the unregenerate world accountable. What does it gain the church, its leaders, and its people to seek the approval of the world if, in the process, we forsake God and his commands for our lives? For the time being, this concludes this episode. Please join me again for part two. 
Now, if you have any questions about God, the Bible, or the Christian Church, I encourage you to send me an email at pastor underscore Yeshua at yahoo.com. That's P-A-S-T-O-R underscore Y-E-S-H-U-A at yahoo.com. Thank you for listening. I will trust in him. I will.